0: <laughs> Jesse was a friend Yeah, he's always been a good friend of mine But lately something's changed, it ain't hard to define Guess he has got himself a girl and I wanna make him mind. And she's watching him with those eyes And she's loving him with that body, I just know it and he's holding her in his arms late, late at night. You know I wish that I had Jesse's girl. I know that I had Jesse's girl. Why can't I find a woman like that? I went along with the charade. It didn't seem to be a reason to change. I feel so dirty when they start talking cute. I want to tell her that I love her, but the point is probably moot. And she's watching it with those eyes. And she's living up with that body. I just knew it. And she's holding it up in arms late, late at night. Ah. <sighs> Howdy folks, we're back, we're back, back in black, hit the sack, gonna love and ride to be back, cause I'm let loose, from the noose, They get me hanging around to get the to get me high, I got the hardest cause you'll never die, I got nine eyes, got size, abusing everyone, and running wild, and I'm back, yes I'm back, Yes, I'm back. I'm back. I'm back in black. I'm back in black. That was was a a bit of a mix of genres there. All right, folks, we're back. We've got chapter five of this here book. This collection of nostrums, this serialized mind-blower where every chapter is like, whatever you think you know, uh, you don't. You're wrong, actually. So, this here chapter, chapter five, I just looked at it. Many seasons ago. Why Canadian foragers kept slaves and their California neighbors didn't. Or the problem with modes of production. So the main meat of this chapter is uh, Grabgro describing a uh, a bit of a cultural odd couple in uh, the western North American continent uh, that existed in the pre-Columbian era. Uh, and that are the uh slave owning uh, uh, aristocratically socially structured uh profligate potlatch societies of northwestern Canada versus the uh abstemious uh hard working non slave holding uh, non ornamentally cultured uh, uh, acorn gatherers of california uh, as opposed to the the salmon hoarders uh the slave handing the slave owning mask wearing uh, salmon hoarders of northwest Canada and The point of this comparison is to diffuse another one of these alleged anthropological uh, commonplaces that they're blowing up in this book. Again, I don't know enough to even be able to tell you if they're blowing anyone's mind or if a lot of this stuff has been, you know, extinct in the field for a while by now. I don't know. Like I said, I've heard certainly that some people have said a lot of the stuff that they're pitching is mind-blowing uh, is really just the state of the the field and that they're not really overturning anything uh, other than, yeah, like intentionally boulderized popular narratives, which, honestly, you can't even say are operative anymore just because of how those sort of middle-brow, intellectual, potted histories that we used to carry around with us have really dissolved. Like, we all now are much more likely to possess very idiosyncratic uh, acquired uh, boutique reality and boutique understanding of like things like anthropological history. There really is a sense where you know we're all sort of trapped by the discursive modes that dominated our youth, and as such can't really recognize fundamental shifts when they occur. Uh, and I think that is really something that 's going on with uh, everyone my age and older, certainly trying to come to terms with the, the 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 real uh obsolescence of a lot of their categories and like modes of thought and 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 conceptual frameworks that I think are just not operative the way they once were, and I think yeah Uh, And I think that a lot of us are sort of toiling in these vineyards trying to do things like, you know, resurrect popular historical understanding uh, with a hope of having these things have the same cultural weight they did when we were young. And the thing is, I don't think they do. But I can't know. That's the thing. Like, I can only watch things unfold around me and just see what looks like the complete collapse of any kind of uh uh like common sense narrative like are there common sense narratives anymore or is it now discrete realities with their discrete potted histories and, and explanatory models once again not sure but anyway one of the things they're trying to blow away is this notion of cultural diffusion. And even in the in the chapter, they pretty much explain that, yeah, people haven't really talked about cultural diffusion in the field for a long time. Uh, but still, they feel the need to dig up this, uh, this straw man and uh, set him on fire. And they claim that diffu- culture is not diffused, first of all, by language, because in lots of settings, people who have different languages will have much more similar uh, cultural models of behavior and values and uh, material culture production than groups with the same language. Like it, it, Language doesn't map onto actual cultural expression. Uh, and culture does not diffuse by like a natural process whereby things just sort of drift the same way that uh, you know, crops like like seeds will just drift in a certain latitude, you know, and, and that's part of their war on the idea that early humanity was not self conscious, that it was in some way more animalistic, animalistic, animal in its uh, behaviors and in its conceptions than human, you know, and that's why that notion of cultural diffusion is basically like a fucking crop, not like human beings. The same way that uh, the vision of early uh, human bands is comparing them not to existing band structures of social organization of humans, but compare them to ape social orders. And this is one of the big things they want to attack, is the notion that early humans did not have the full complement of um, social understandings, concepts, uh, and the ability to express them, in other words, politics, and that means that culture is not diffused naturally. Uh, culture is constantly circulated uh, through a geographic area. And he and Grabro cite the work of uh, an anthropologist named Marcel Mauss, I believe, is how you pronounce it, who claims that, for example, the entire Pacific Rim is one not uh, one zone, not of one culture, but of a cultural diffusion zone. Where all of these discrete cultures encounter one another, and it is through these and these encounters are what creates culture, not through a natural process, but by one of these groups, all of these groups, deciding discreetly as a political act to refuse to adopt certain of the other cultural uh, elements that they have uh, observed in these exchanges. So they're exchanging culture, some of the stuff. Yeah, we do like they do. We do like they do on that. And then there's things that your neighbor does that you as a culture decide collectively to not do. And not doing it is what defines uh, your social order. Like that's what culture is, is the things that you decline to, uh, to assimilate into what is otherwise like a baseline uh, uh, a set of cultural elements that are shared. And so the rest of the chapter is discussing uh, two tribes who uh, uh, stand in for the broader uh, split in cultural groupings uh, in northwestern Canada, where you had these genuinely uh, feudal structures, like things that really did uh, in their way uh, compare to European aristocratic social order, with uh, fisher gatherers, uh, in this case specifically the, uh, the Coactal, I believe, the Coacto tribe, um, who would organize their uh, economy around a few seasonal salmon runs that would create such superabundance of salmon that they could be mass-processed. They could be taken in huge numbers and then consumed and processed for future consumption. And then it's this, that's, the, so, that's the economic model that undergirds their social order. And these are societies with uh, hi, um, hereditary uh, aristocratic families who had little feudal households with incredibly elaborately designed homes and, and decorations uh, ostentatious displays of uh, of physical culture like, and, and, and in possession of these families uh, and that their ritual life is folk fixed around the potlatch which is a, a, a festival of uh, exchange and destruction of surplus, basically to keep all these aristocrats on an even keel so that you don't get a situation where they have to fight each other and that's what happens when you have persistent inequality in a hierarchical social order. Uh, and capitalism's engine is the fact that we don't destroy surplus. That's what keeps us on the treadmill. And that's why eventually capitalism replaces human agency. Because uh, chasing that surplus becomes an imperative of everyone at every link in the economic chain. So there is uh, resources are... Oh, God, I almost felt... I did, the chair did not break that time. I just don't have a back to it. Um I got I'm getting a new chair next week, I believe. Yeah, no. I'm glad I didn't eat shit on that one. That would have sucked. I'm fine. Uh And these how these uh social orders also possess uh chattel slavery, which is incredibly rare in uh, pre-Columbian North America. There's, basically, there's almost no other uh, societies that practiced chattel slavery before uh, European arrival to North America. And that's that social order. So you have a bunch of fat, uh, sed- literally sedentary uh, uh, aristocrats who just sit around on surplus all day and then ritually destroy it with each other through ostentatious displays of uh, gift giving uh, that that shows one's power through one's open handedness and again has the function of destroying ex, uh, surplus so that everyone can just keep enjoying themselves uh, within, without a competitive framework between elites and so they just slather themselves in uh, in salmon oil and 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 uh burn piles of uh valuable oils and eat every eat all the food uh and that maintains the so uh, uh the bonds between them and then that also because of the way they distribute also downward to the commoners uh defines their uh and and validates their relationship with the wider uh group because these uh the commoners are, are are not like serfs because they can go from a different house that gives them a better deal uh and so that maintains but as they point out slavery is introduced into the social order because the prestige of the uh of the aristocrat is in part his uh his, at his um Uh, immunity from demands to do uh, physical labor. That is um, what defines an aristocrat. Yes, they have a finely carved home and all these trinkets, but they also, there are things they don't do. There's work they don't do. Uh, And in order to access, to pile up enough surplus to keep everybody happy, a certain amount of work has to be done. And there's only so much you can ask of your subjects before they say, fuck you. And that is, that, that, this, that uh, fracture is, to my mind, the real origin of all social inequality. Is that eventually, given us a complex enough economy, which creates some sort of surplus. And when I mean surplus, I don't just mean, I don't mean of calories, I mean of time. That that surplus is then going is then eventually uh distributed towards one end, and that is the people who already have the surplus who are able to use the time and energy literally to develop an interior uh, understanding of like the greater good and 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 the uh, the what you should want. Because that's the thing, uh, the, the, what, what we're really seeking when we imagine, when what, what fantasy we're trying to imagine, what, what, what uh, idea of human, uh, uh, like, virtue that we kind of cling to is an idea of a social order where there is no compulsion, right? Like, this is what some people dream early, uh, hunter-gatherer bands were like, this is what socialists think we can get back to uh, with the liberation of uh, technology, Uh and in those situations, there is a consistent harmony between this best interest of the group and the perceived best interest of individuals within that group. There's, an, And I think that is, this is something that they don't talk about in this book, and I think is probably the fundamental flaw in their idea, is that they want to demolish the idea that there is some primitive state of uh, idyllic innocence, because they think that it... Uh, alienates us from those people too much. It it turns them into idiots or saints. It, it, it dehumanizes them, or it rises them beyond humanness and says that they're angels. Either way, we can't relate to them, and so we can't accept that. But I don't agree. I think that there's enough evidence, especially from the eras before they talk about, because they only really start talking about things at uh, 40,000 BC, uh, or uh, 40,000 years ago, which... uh is when they claim is when you can actually start, like, figuring out what's going on. But there's evolutionary evidence for human existence going back over a 100,000 years, more of that, where humans lived as humans, as human beings, as distinct uh, species. What were they doing then? And they gloss over it and say we can't really know as part of their effort to try to dispel the idea that there was some uh, social harmony that was intrinsic to early human existence. And I think there was... Because at that point, because of the lack of that surplus buildup, there is no time, literally, for individual aims that are pointedly and pathologically in conflict with the best interests of the group don't exist. People can have conflicts and and, and, uh, and chafe under authority within any human uh, um, paradigm, but those moments do not add up they can't be added up to a pathological uh, individualized uh, endeavor. But eventually, under certain conditions, the need become the, the, the social need emerges to create to create surplus for the best interests of the tribe. And in so doing, by doing that by saying okay, we want. We all know what's best for us, but now because of changing, probably changing ecological climactic conditions, we have to accumulate some surplus. And if you accumulate surplus, you are not just piling up extra calories. You are leaving some people with time where they are not working together, uh, where they are not part of a social. A collective social endeavor where they are, in fact, uh, spending that time to pilot the ship, as it were, to um, to figure out what this needs to be done with the surplus, because the surplus has to be uh, distributed from a central point, right? Or else you don't really, uh, or else you just have the surplus that is sort of naturally created and then destroyed cyclically. For it to be accumulated, it has to be accumulated toward the center. And that means a separate group of people. And that group of people have to figure out where it goes and to what use it's put. And they will, by the fact that they spend more time around each other than with everybody doing collective work, they're going to develop an understanding of the best interests of everyone that is actually their narrow, sensual desire to not do unpleasant tasks. To not spend time doing something that is physically unpleasant, so that I can spend time doing things like, you know, uh, taking hallucinogenic mushrooms and talking to God, uh, and uh, enjoying the fruits of uh, est- 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 aesthetic culture, uh, arts and and, and uh, uh, sport, all that wonderful stuff that makes up our unalienated life right the thing that we're all trying to seek this can be had now and in, and the and the desire for more can be indulged now and once you have that fracture you will eventually come to a point where there a real fundamental shift break between the self interest of this group and everybody else is going to emerge and then what comes out of that crack up is uh the development of modes of production, accommodating this fracture, this class conflict that emerges as this class is created. The first class that becomes self-conscious is the ruling class. And so with these 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 uh this tribe in Northwest uh Canada that Grabgro talked about there's this upward desire for surplus among these elites in this uh in this fishmongering tribe but there is x amount of work that the people who are laboring for the others on the on the understanding that it's the best deal they can get that hey yes i'm working and they're not but i also get access to their leftovers at potlatch i get gifts i get reciprocation uh, there's plenty of social benefits to a uh affluent social structure like that because remember they have so many fucking fish that they can just scoop out of the water during a few key uh moments that uh they do not have to worry about starvation here like they are able to uh, create social stability and that is a benefit to those commoners but it's in exchange for an amount of work that isn't overly alienating and unpleasant. How do you fill the gap? They figured out by raiding other people and turning them into slaves. Taking people, ripping them out of a social context where they could make claims of rights because rights are just like, they're, they're created by social bonds. they there's social obligations. Slave is not obligated, no one is obligated to a slave. And so they do more of the, the uh, alienating labor, and the commoners feel like they're still getting a good deal. Now, this new thing that's now created, which is, because now you're, you're not talking about a society that is these aristocrats and their commoners. It is a society that is the aristocrats, commoners, and slaves. You have now integrated this new thing into your social structure, and it is an inherent agent of destabilization uh, and destruction. It is a poison that you've swallowed, because the because creating this dispossessed class who only labors and has no social connection to the structures of uh, order that everybody else is. They are their danger grows. That they are potential sources for uh, violence and even if it never happens the fact that everyone knows it's possible poisons all social relations so they talk about this social order this the uh the quakult and then they point out that the quakult are are endemic of are uh, emblematic of this form that dominated this area among these fisher gatherers but if you go down the coast of, Cali- uh, of the United States, the, the now United States, from those Canadian uh, coastal areas, you get this fracture zone, this uh, shatter point, they call it, where there's a big breakup of uh, and you get sort of a liminal space uh, where there's a uh, mixture of different social orders from these two spheres. And then south of it, in Northern California, is a uh, social order... Uh, emblemized by the Urochs uh, that is rigorously egalitarian, that uh, does use money and does have private property and does uh, fetishize labor uh, in ways that uh, have been compared to the Protestant work ethic, but is also uh plain, shuns ornaments, shuns uh, indulgence, and uh, uh uh values self-restraint and uh and essentially superego uh enrichment through a ritual of denial and this is in every way the opposite of the northwestern uh fisher uh society. and these people were uh, the Uruk were were not fishers. They did not hoard massive amounts of uh, uh, protein surplus. They were um, g- gatherers, uh, acorn gatherers predominantly, uh, with other supplements as well and things that were domesticated too. But the, their culture had money, and one of the few social orders uh, in uh, North America again that had money. That was used for something other than ceremonial purposes. Uh, this is money that is actually used to exchange things. Uh, but in most of these cultures, uh, that wealth is destroyed at death. It can, once again, you can't have it. Surp- uh, the surplus uh, be uh, come over powerful and 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 destabilize social relations. And again, you have wealthy families, you have poorer families, you even have sort of a, a paupers who can't. Make their uh, debt obligations and are kind of in an in a intermediate zone, but there's no outright slavery, uh, and uh, there is no power differential. Like the fact, the people who have more wealth do not have any power and influence uh, uh, over anybody. There still is no state to like uphold their wealth. It's socially, con- it's consensually affirmed. It doesn't require a state. Because, as I said, there is no real authority that comes with being well wealth, wealthy. Uh, but they have this is a opposite social order. Like uh, the the rituals of the Kwiyakut are all about deception and trickery. Uh, they're about cheating people and 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 uh, presenting a false face. They have masks, incredibly detailed ceremonial masks that still survive and are cherished by uh, natural history museums. Uh, and Uh, the uh, Europe, for example, use no masks in their rituals, uh, and uh, uh, detest uh, that kind of wastefulness and uh, deceit. And what they theorize is essentially that you know this; these two uh, social forms emerge in dialectical contact with each other. They, the, they, uh, the, the. Uh, I would argue, and I think they would probably agree that the, that violent, uh, the, especially when you consider the direction of the, of this migration, that the, this, uh, the, the slavers of the northwest are no, farther north, which means that they are likely to have gotten there first. In if we accept the idea that uh, Aboriginal Americans are passed over the Bering Land Bridge. I know there's some controversy about that, but I think it's still broadly assumed. Then they're going to move down from south to north, of course, along the water. Uh, And it makes sense to imagine that the Quiokok emerged first and that the Yurok and other uh, California tribes are people who uh, uh, encountered them in one way or another and noticed from the outside the deficiencies of their social order and therefore built theirs self-consciously in opposition to it. And I think this is absolutely, uh, to me, plausible. It makes sense. Uh, like, if you wanted to explain how you get, like, uh, society to emerge, like, like the material uh, social order, this is as good an explanation as I've seen. And i got to say, as, as a American history uh, buff and somebody who's just spent a lot of time thinking about uh, American politics and how they emerged from uh, conflicting social structures within one uh, uh, polity, you look at the Kweka culture, the culture of their elite, and you compare it to the culture of the Yurok elite, and you really do have a kind of, stunning uh uh stunningly familiar dynamic uh, compared to the antebellum northern and southern cultural conflict uh that like the urach the the sublimation of uh, desire and the cultivation of like inner spirituality through uh, denial which is essentially just wiring your brain to get pleasure from denial, as opposed to pleasure from pleasure, that you've literally wired your brain culturally through encounters with others to take what should feel good and decide it actually feels bad, and if you and um and if you look at the Yankee uh, Calvinist uh, uh, core of the uh, abolitionist movement. Uh, you, uh, which is also the core of northern finance capital as compared to southern planter capital, you see this ideology, this, this theology at play. Uh, you can see the emergence of uh, Pro- the Protestant social world as an attempt to accommodate capitalism as it reshaped their social lives, uh, a way to cope. Uh, and it has to be uh, well maintained. But the thing is, is that they have this ideology, but because of capitalism's uh, uh, global power at this point, and certainly European and American power, they have to hold this belief while essentially living in the same society uh, as the quiet cults would have created, which uh, is what you get. That's the, the engine of social conflict in North America is between this older form of social life and a newer one. Uh, and so if you've experienced uh, from the wrong end of it, the, uh, the deficiencies of the quiet cultural order, right? Like look what their profligacy does. Look what their uh, uh, ostentatious consumption of surplus does in the long run. It makes the ones on top feel good for a little bit, They get to get all covered in grease and roll around. They're having a great time now, but they also sometimes have a hard time sleeping because they're worried about what the slave is going to do. And then, you know, what if you aren't them, which most people aren't? You apply the Rawlsian state of nature, which you can at this point, and say, hey, uh, I'm getting a raw deal out of this, or I would get a raw deal if I was part of it, because I can't assume that I'm going to be one of the fucking elites. In fact, I have to assume I probably won't be. Well all right, well if we're going to have a social order that prevents this from happening, what do we do? Well we have to make that which is tantalizing disgusting. We have to culturally perform rituals that affirm that there is no value in excess and indulgence and sloth. That 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 pleasure comes from virtuous exertion and If you believe it, it's true. It's alchemical. That's what culture can do. The problem is is that it can't be done consciously. You can't say, well, I'm going to think that now. It's built through social interaction by the structures, a social uh, relationship that is performed ritually over and over again. And the thing is, is that when you're ritually destroying, uh, and so, yeah, you have like this little proto-Protestant movement that emerges in the same dynamic that Protestantism emerged in Europe. But here, in this uh, non-agricultural hunter-gatherer society, because if you're, if, you're uh, if you're past the veil of uh, agriculture, however you want to argue we got there, once you're through the veil there, it all changes. It's a different world. It's a different mental landscape. Uh, it is much less uh, shapeable, and I think that's one thing that anarchists like Graeber don't get: is that our 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 like experiential relationship with the world is altered fundamentally by uh, the emergence of. Uh, a class society reinforced in the land where surplus can be not destroyed, not consumed as it's made, but piled up and then turned into monuments to the dead. Because everybody is living their life, right? With thoughts in their head about why they're trying to do something, what they want it to be, what they want to be in the world, what values uh, they have. What de- definition words have emotionally? Uh, and those die with them. And they never. we never get to see the last like revelation of, oh, I was right about this, I was wrong about that. We're left only with their actions. We're only left with the, what they did under those beliefs. And that is through a veil. And it creates these structures that reproduce uh, relationships over time. It means that no matter what uh, religious beliefs we have, no matter how we have ordered uh, our uh, value system, we are operating under assumptions of a mass slave society, but where the slavery has been replaced by a ritualized manner. Uh, slavery with extra steps, as I said on Rick and Morty. And those extra steps are necessary to accommodate this more refined moral sentiment, because it is a more refined moral sentiment. Uh, but in this pre- or non-agricultural uh, mode of production that they're talking about, this, this mode of production that in the mode of production, that is, uh, that is more a tributary state, with, like, ritualized uh, agriculture, or ritualized economy, uh, I guess that's how you'd put it. You'd you'd call it a ritual economy, as opposed to an economy that is defined by uh, a consistent mode of economic action uh, that overawes human, uh, you know, uh, human agency. I was like, yeah, okay, maybe a ritual society existed at one point, but eventually capitalism comes along and drives a stake in its fucking heart. So we can't, we're not those people anymore. So in, in, this, in this environment where you have, more than anything, free land, where people can move and accommodate conflicts and culture through geography, you have the emergence of these two separate orders, right? Separate social orders, the Yurok and the Kallakwik, that operate independently. Uh, but in America, for example, there's nowhere to go. Everybody and everyone is operating off of the same broad uh, social structure—the the the regime of private property enshrined in Roman law. Let's call it like the inheritance of the Western uh, uh, reality, like the West, the the fundamental understanding of the world. The 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 heuristic of life that we carry with us is enshrined in Roman law, and we've been living with it ever since. It has consumed the whole world. And living in it is living with contradiction and living with alienation. And how do you do that? You can either, if you are at the top, remember, we're talking about people who are at the top of this food chain, people who are in the elite, who feel... Alienation uh, not because of too uh, much hard work, uh, but for too little. they're not working enough for what they're consuming, and it is an imbalance that causes anxiety, alienation, physical and psychological pain that have to be assuaged and our our old antebellum planter class. I mean, they were the richest people in America, right? But they were all also constantly in debt. They were all wildly in debt because of how much they were forced to consume to compete with one another. So they have to compete in getting bigger and bigger mansions and uh and more and more casks of fine champagne. Remember Thomas Jefferson had a gigantic wine collection and he was a compulsive book buyer, but he was so broke that even though Casimir Pulaski said, Hey, I'm giving my will to you to free your slaves. He was uh, TJ just said, yeah, you know, actually I just got to, I'm going to use this instead to pay off my debts because I'm a fucking compulsive consumer. You had to do it. It was what validated all that misery right outside your door. Like it is the splendor. This is the, one of uh, Edmund Burke's key points. It is the splendor of surplus enjoyed by an aristocratic elite that it that produces cultural excellence, that produces uh, all good in a social order. It is our ability to bask in uh artistically rendered surplus like on behalf of feudal patrons by skilled artisans that give us our ability to live as full human beings that's like the that's the and allow anybody at any level of society to look upward and with hope that's the burke uh, argument and that is what like if you had to interrogate them that's what these people would say and it's what for the for the antebellum slave owners anyway they certainly did say over and over again we get because we get to sit here and we get to like uh, translate Greek and and uh, pay for uh, you know indulgences of agriculture of uh, architecture and and in in import fine French linens and silks and stuff doing that is if we weren't doing that, this would be a swamp, you know, and wouldn't you rather have a nice white house than a swamp? And it really is an appeal to the programming that you get, because if that's what, because that is the consolation prize for our slavery. Like it's not pure gun to the head. It's like, here's this cultural edifice that you get to enjoy Here's these circuses to go with your bread. And for a lot of people, that's enough to keep people... I mean, for, for enough people, it's by definition enough to keep them going because we still have this fucking system. We've had conflicts within it, but it has not been uh, destroyed from without. And all challenges from within it have been neutralized. So you have this this understanding of power, understanding of of, uh, virtue, that indulgence is to be enjoyed on its own uh, terms because it has a social function. Uh, You will have eventually the emergence of this uh, power amongst those who have the capacity to seek control. Like they have the language, they have the uh, position and ability to win in this competition for resources, but they don't want to do it with a whip. They don't want to do it by exploiting someone directly. They will flee to business. They will flee to abstraction. And they will flee to a moral, moral uh, framework that turns self-denial into pleasure, basically. The pleasure of resisting pleasure. And that's religious at first when it's Calvinism, but it turns into just secular liberalism. That is why wokeness as a religion is one of the dumbest things you can say to someone and act like you're blowing their minds. Because the religious urge, uh, the religious need to justify ourselves does not go away uh, because belief in God goes away. It just transforms and becomes uh, a quest for virtue for its own sake. And it boils down to one's sensitivity to uh, to the eyes of others. Like Jeremy Bentham understood more than most the social implications of, of liberalism and capitalism uh and but unlike marx he want he thought it was all a good thing and it was for the best for everyone that it would fulfill it would it's it's uh the answer to the question of how to confidently uh seek the greatest good and it is his utilitarian vision and that requires though a uh a social vision at its heart and because he was a liberal. It couldn't be, you know, solidarity of a class, because that's horrifying. That that denies liberal autonomy and subjectivity, and it denies uh, the culture that liberalism and capitalism are producing. Uh, instead, uh, Bentham's vision was essentially a technologized, technologized uh, version of uh, Robespierre's Despotative virtue, where everybody behaves because they know everybody else is watching them, the panopticon. And that gaze can stand in for the eyes of God, which we no longer feel. And because we can only be happy to the degree that we are seen positively. That's why hell is other people, and that's what makes this media moment we live in so vertiginous. Is that we are gaining to a point where the panopticon is real, but we are also developed and uh, um, like adapted, I should say, to to capitalism as it accelerates and as it fixes all of us in Amber, uh, we have evolved to seek it, not out of uh, a desire to conform to a good, but to be seen. Not all of us, of course, but, I mean, what would social media be if people didn't want to be seen? So that's uh, that's the gist, that's the nut of the most important parts anyway. There's some other stuff, but uh, I think we got to the meat of Chapter 5. So we'll do Chapter 6 for next week. That one's called... Gardens of Adonis, the revolution that never happened. How Neolithic peoples avoided agriculture. Yeah, I honestly feel like at this point these questions are meaningless. Uh, like oh was it agriculture or not it's like you once it's fixed i would argue that once that agriculture fixes the relationship that's what i would say i would agree that uh something comes before agriculture that agriculture is sort of developed as a tool to enforce and in, and maintain an existing social structure i would i would say that like not, hey, let's do agriculture, and then oops, oops, we created uh, hierarchies and kings. more hierarchies and kings, and I think this is a key component of it, secret societies, like ritual cults of, you know, uh, the, the religiously touched, ie those most capable of utilizing symbolic meaning to convey ideas, the technology. Of communication ones who are better than that who are better at that rather uh, will under condition under I'd say lo- generally under uh, shifting climactic and e- ecological conditions are going to come into being and then they're going to be in a tug of war with the natural world and with the other half of the class divide over what is to be done and the conflict will like i said eventually deepen and agriculture i would probably i would say is emerges out of a desire to fix and reinforce a social hierarchy that is under pressure but we'll see we'll see the rest of it we'll see what we talk about And I feel like that's a distinction that's meaningful because I think like, you know, you might say, well, then you mean it wasn't agriculture, you know, Then, then, uh, then it's something else. But whatever that something else was, it happened through a veil, through a veil of experiential knowledge that we cannot access, as in the... Subjective experience of living under those conditions. I would argue that they are of a they are. It is a different experience enough that communicating across that uh, divide and trying to live in it and uh, and establish like a narrative out of it is is basically impossible. And more importantly, we can't act like them. We cannot live as they did. We cannot have a vocabulary that they had because we live in a disenchanted world. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that enchantment is gone. The dis stands for, in my mind, displacement. The the magic has been transformed and uh, um, displaced onto other forms like the market. Like technology, which are just extensions of that early symbolic manipulation that established a, uh, a leadership class, a elite. I am an island boy. An island boy, that's me, I'm an island boy, you know I'm an island boy. So, I, I gotta say, I, I have a feeling I might get to the end of this book and be like, you know what, they've actually convinced me, I understand all the objections, but if you want to replace one narrative that is you know, flattening and distorting, uh, but communicates some basic truth, I'll take this one instead of any of the others that are on offer but also kind of who cares because once you have agriculture, the fact of it reorients the human experience away from a natural embeddedness and a a feedback loop of of, a sensory feedback loop. Uh, it, It cuts a limb off. Like we are all amputees and have been for a very long time and you can't tell someone to use their cut off limb to do something like you can't say hey that that arm that got cut off could you go and reach that fucking coffee uh, mug with it it's it, you can might feel the tingle we all feel the tingle but it's uh it's no longer operative that doesn't mean though that we can't do anything it means that what we do has to restructure our material relationships with one another to allow us to produce new Behavioral rituals that reinforce new value systems. Not that we can just use our symbols that have existed for millennia under these conditions of exploitation, and domination, and property. Uh, this alienation from a natural world that has been replaced by this alien technology. This 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 uh it's like they cut the limb off and they replaced it with a fucking terminator cyborg arm that is actually controlled by skynet. so it's like who cares we're a different species in ways and when we're talking about accessing our power of you know self uh self assertion our powers of communication and political mobilization and organizing towards goals that got us this fucking far, we can't use it? No, we can But are we going to convince each other to think a certain way and then act off of it? No. We're going to convince a small, at first, number of people to do a certain thing. Using persuasion to get there but through, for, towards this specific goal of doing a thing. And then through the doing, creating conditions where people can think a different way. This chair does not have a back. It was given to me and it had a back, but then as soon as I touched it, the back fell off. Uh, but I will be getting a new chair. I think it's in the mail. It's, it's a, it's a nice one. It's not a gamer chair though, so don't get your hopes up. It's not gonna have like monster energy on it. No gamer chairs for me, thanks. Yeah, I got no lumbar support here. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just hunched over. That's why I'm hoping to get a new chair that will maybe get my, get me a little less hunchbacked. I lose like an inch of height by how, uh, how, bunched I am. Not great. I'm an island boy. I'm an island boy. Island boy. I'm an island boy. But by the way, this the kayak Wilkes versus the urox here. It's I mean I've already spelled it out pretty pretty uh, clearly, but like this is just Democrats and Republicans. Don't be an asshole. Don't be a pussy. It's different regimes of uh, accessing the pleasures of living as an alienated, lonely, miserable, capitalist subject, but benefiting from uh, access to surplus and not having to work and not having to do unpleasant labor. How do we think about that? Now... A reactionary way to think about it is uh, my pleasure comes from pleasure uh, big old steaks and 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 uh, jet skis and all this this is that is what it's for. but as you get older, you can enjoy those things less, not just because they get old, but because like you literally lose the ability to feel the sensation like your your sense organs start dimming uh and uh, and pain in your body turns up like you're feeling your insides decay all of a sudden like this hamburger doesn't taste as good as it used to and that someone's got to pay for it and so their culture is of relentless grievance because remember you're triggering out how to be okay at the top of a podium pole that causes misery everywhere and even to you and the way to do that is you have to also be a victim one way or the other of someone. Because otherwise you have to change your behavior and you don't want to do that. And So that's why they're all crazy and they're going insane about the idea of not being able to get their treats and why the thought of uh, of, of uh, not being able to go to a bar uh, or a, a TGI McScratchy's drove them insane. Then you got The liberal response, which is to have the same economic security, the same access to surplus, but you don't use it that way. You eat healthy. You travel to broaden your mind. Uh, You do things to be good. And that's pleasurable, too. The pursuit of that virtue is, in its own way, a pleasurable mental narrative to drive you through life as the habit-trail-like pursuit of... Mere pleasure is for the conservative. And they feel uh, oppressed too by the worse people than them, by the bad people. Their attitude, of course, to the poor is essentially the same. That they need to be... uh, Ignored or rounded up, depending on if how much they're inconveniencing me. But the difference is, it's their own fault, and I'm hate, and they deserve to be punished. If you're a conservative, or it's the conservatives' fault, but they still uh, need to be punished. Everything, it, it accepts the same political premise because it has no more interest than anyone else in changing the political relationships, political reality, or distribution of surplus. Uh, what they want to change is their personal feeling about it. The uh, the indulgence of their vicarious pleasure centers. Which is why we're getting dueling sadisms. This is really the only way to understand politics now. It is the government... Cannot help you. Things are only going to get worse. What the government can do is make it worse for others. Worse for people I don't like. And then you can vote for the government to do that. And, of course, the trick is is that all this pain is going to mostly happen anyway. And what's going to really distribute the pain is going to be the market working itself out. Right? Uh, Just whoever is, it's going to be a combination of like where groups of people are in relationship to capital and then the random chance of individual lives. You might end up, you individually might end up uh, up, down, annihilated, saved, but people like you are going to cluster into certain relationships, and that means disproportionately poor people are going to suffer the most. People outside the country are going to suffer the most. But there will be suffering also up and down the ladder, randomly distributed. And the act of voting for a comfortable Republican or Democrat is to root for your side to get in, so that as you watch the misery unfold, you get to notice when your enemies are in pain and feel good that your government caused it. Now, of course, people who you claim to like you claim to be on your side are also suffering, but their suffering is, not, uh, is only pointed out to increase your uh, sense of sadistic lust at the suffering of the other because you get to blame them. The people who you are cheering on the misery of are to blame for the misery of yours under your guy, under your, uh, your guy's leadership and then to be under the condition of the other is to feel oppression which is its own pleasurable little narrative map to live in and self-righteousness which is its own little food pellet okay i think that i think that was pretty good I'm thinking more about about this specific question of, of of how of how much culture boils down to a game of uh, of of self soothing. It is it is the uh, those who are able to access surplus right are essentially in charge of distributing it, and where it gets distributed. Again, this is in fixed agricultural so- social structures that have you know, emerged and then took over the world and now are uh, unchallenged anywhere. Uh, The culture, the stuff we live in and breathe and that structures all of our relationships and lives, the superstructure of the, the, the world is produced by a essentially miserable ruling class in that they are never comfortable, they are never at peace the kind of peace that comes from feeling in harmony with the universe. Put that cheesily, but it is a thing, and they can't feel it, ever. What they can do is distribute some of that surplus into soothing that sense of discomfiture. That is all of our culture. And that's why you're always looking through uh, the wrong side of the telescope when you're trying to understand the morality of most cult, of, of culture that is mass-produced in any social structure. Because it's telling people things are a way, uh, things that all the bad things that exist are the fault of something literally that is not to be spoken of, that cannot be addressed. And then that is then what, even if it's not what they lived under at the time, it's what we remember them as, retrospectively. Because it's all that's left everything else went away the, the there is much less material culture among the uh, laborers in a class society by de- it's uh, it can be no other way and I really feel like this uh, chapter kind of kind of twanged off of a lot of the ways things I've, stuff I've been thinking about so. Interesting. So we'll dive into agriculture next week. Bye-bye.